Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's podcast is a special episode in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, the tipping point leading to the outpouring across the country, and indeed the globe, of grief, acknowledgement, anger, unacceptance, and now hopefully willingness to change the systemic racism that led to yet another killing of an innocent black person in our country. This episode is a series of conversations with six black leaders in the real estate business, each of whom will talk a bit about their personal experience and importantly on their thoughts on how our real estate community can directly take responsibility for and address systemic racism in our country. Our guests, each of whom will introduce themselves in the conversations are, in order of presentation, Tammy Jones, who's the CEO of Basis Investment Group, a commercial real estate debt and equity investor. She's also the current chair of the Real Estate Executive Council, which is the premier trade association of black and Hispanic leaders in the real estate business. Second, we have Daryl Carter, a former guest on Leading Voices, who's the CEO of Avanath Capital Management, an owner-operator of affordable and workforce housing. Third, we have Tyrone Roderick Williams, who's the Deputy Director of the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency. Fourth, we have Robin Hughes, who's the CEO of Abode Communities, a nonprofit housing developer in Southern California, and also the current board chair of the Housing Partnership Network. Fifth is my business partner, Bill Whitlow of Terra Search Partners. And sixth is Cedric Bobo, also a prior guest on Leading Voices, and saved for the end of the conversation since his group, Project Destin, is doing some of the work that everyone is discussing, which is building training programs for low-income youth using live real estate deals as the venue to gain financial literacy and build avenues for education and career paths. It's an amazing program. Our listeners have heard me become preachier over time on the podcast, so at the risk of repeating messages you've heard me say in the past, I'll say it again. The work that we do in the real estate business has deep impact. What we do is not value neutral. The structures, communities, and cities that we build, the properties that we operate, and the companies through which we do our work have the opportunity to create the world as a better place just as they have the opportunity to denigrate. To use negative examples, our industry built the suburbs that were both consciously racially discriminatory through redlining and blockbusting, as revealed in the amazing book The Color of Law, and helped create our environmentally disastrous car culture. We have the opportunity and the obligation as an industry to do better, and that's been the subject of many of the conversations on Leading Voices. This is personal for all of us, including us middle-aged white guys. I'm a baby boomer child of the 60s, and I grew up with the values of the civil rights movement and the environmental movement as core values that I'll say I've taken for granted. I figured that my generation, when we got into leadership in the country, both politically and in corporate America, would change the world. We failed miserably at that, particularly in terms of race relations. This is personal. The COVID crisis made even more real how privileged I am. I've had the blessing during COVID of work from home in a country place in Sonoma County with my wife and daughter. It's actually been pretty cool. And the gulf between my experience and that of the frontline workers, largely black and Hispanic, who could not afford not to put themselves in harm's way, has become all the more obvious. COVID laid bare the inequities, the racism, and the short-term thinking in our society. Then George Floyd brought this gulf of privilege from a concept to a visceral reality. 
Every black mother and father has had the conversation with their kid about what to do if stopped by a cop. I have never, ever had to fear for my life for being stopped for a traffic ticket. We've watched this on the news year after year after year after year, and this time it just struck the match for all of us, certainly people of color, but also the rest of us. We just cannot passively allow ourselves to be part of a society that allows and normalizes sequential killings of people like Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and all the way back over and over and over again. It has been amplified by COVID, and I think further amplified by political leadership on both sides of the aisle that's enabled this, but particularly by a commander-in-chief who celebrates division. We all know that we're better than this. What's also become clear to me is that my being a good guy is not good enough. There's a difference between our own personal behaviors and the institutionalized behaviors of us as a group. We have to take personal responsibility not just for our own behavior, but the institutions much harder to change. So here are six conversations with leaders in the black real estate community talking about what we as an industry can and indeed must be doing. I try, hard as it is for me, to let them do most of the talking. And we hear real ideas for long-term change alongside a lot of real pain. One theme throughout these conversations is that we need each other. And each of our guests today talks about their partnerships, allies, and deep friends in the business. For everyone, but especially those baby boomers like me towards the end of their careers in the business, this has to be a top priority as our legacy to the country. Leading Voices will continue to explore leadership across the real estate business. We will make these issues around values in our work, particularly racial equity, and presenting the stories of diverse voices in even greater priority in the show. And I acknowledge that this has not been a strong enough emphasis yet throughout the three years of the show. I often cite other podcasts or media around the topic of the episode. There is so much to recommend. I suggest that you listen to the recent podcast episode on the Ezra Klein Show with Ta-Nehisi Coates as they talk about these current events. I also recommend a movie that we watched at home last week, which is available to stream I Am Not Your Negro, a documentary around racism in the United States told through the life and words of James Baldwin. I also ask if you're able to please continue to do the work through donating and having tough conversations both in your workplace and in your homes. Race is awkward to talk about, as you will soon hear me stumbling through, but change starts with going outside of our comfort zones and articulating and demanding the change we believe in. This is a long episode, by the way. We did not want to cut it in half. We did not want to heavily edit it for sound bites and felt it important to hear the voices and conversations with multiple guests. I appreciate your taking the time to listen in, and I hope that you find value in this episode. Please pass this on to your friends, and you can comment via our LinkedIn post or email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Okay, our first conversation is with Tammy Jones, the CEO of Basis Investment Group. Our next guest is Tammy Jones, who's the CEO and founder of Basis Investment Group, a debt and structured equity real estate investment firm founded back in 2009, an interesting time. Um, Tammy is also the current board chair of the Real Estate Executive Council, a real estate trade association of black leaders from across the real estate industry. Tammy, welcome to Leading Voices, and thank you for doing this special episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think what you're doing is super, super important. And 
you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough time. Um, thank you for, for the introduction. Um, yes, I founded Basis in 2009 and, you know, I'm, I'm the CEO and, and, uh, and founder of a company that, you know, I've tried to, to create uh, to be more of a diversified uh, investment platform. Um, just to quickly mm-hmm. tell you what we do. Please. We're an SEC registered investment advisor. And effectively, we're fiduciaries to invest capital for some of the largest U.S. pension funds, sovereigns, and family offices in the United States. And as you mentioned, we focus on commercial real estate debt and equity strategies um, with a focus in the middle market. Um, Basis is also a seller servicer with uh, with Freddie Mac. So, you know, diversified platform, really trying to take advantage of opportunities up and down the capital stack to invest on behalf of our investors. Uh-huh. And, and how much of that, just to play real estate for a few minutes, how much of that's kind of a bit more on the equity side or structured equity? What is, what's all that mean? Yeah. So we have done about 4 billion in transactions um, mm-hmm. and on the structured equity and preferred equity side, you know, we've probably closed, you know, over a billion. Um, of just that product, um, but that is uh, it's it's been it's been great, and and recently um, we've been moving more towards some of the opportunities um, where uh, there's a structured equity component or some participation in the upside, in addition to uh, some of the straight debt investments that we've been doing. Fair deal. So let's start with your personal observations and feelings around the events of the last two weeks. We're in the middle of COVID, but we're right at the killing of George Floyd two weeks ago. The world has changed. What are your thoughts about maybe this is the time that something actually happens long-term change-wise? Well, so first, I'm going to speak to you and the audience as an African-American mother um, who really fell apart physically Hmm. when George Floyd cried out for his own mother. Um, That just shook me and probably every other African-American man and woman, you know, to our core. And, and I'm, and I think many Americans and and obviously even beyond America across the world, right. Mm -hmm. As you pointed out, you know, in addition to, you know, being devastated by the pandemic, being, you know, cautious and, and worried about the economy and, and the whipsawing and the volatility, you know, as African-Americans, we also had, our human rights brutally assaulted with the back-to-back. I mean, it, it was George Floyd. It was Ahmaud Arbery. It's Breon Taylor. The incident in Central Park. I mean, one after one incident after another, that just really were reminders to us about what we know exists every day. And the only difference was that we now have people recording things. Yep. And so we've been living this. And so, um, second, I'm going to come to you as the CEO of Basis. Mm-hmm. And, and the chair of Reese, and, and, I'll, and I'll just say, I'm kind of tired of being tired of the same dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been a champion for diversity and, and inclusion for most of my career. I have, I have devoted um, time, energy, money to trying to create change. And it's fallen largely on, on deaf ears. Um, I've been in this industry for 20 plus years, and I honestly believe that we've been poking at it. Um, I think that change and a revolution and a transformation will not come by just having diversity and inclusion training sessions. And I feel like, you know, we've been doing that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But now let me switch it to the positive because I am an optimistic woman. The outpouring and the outreach 
from many CEOs in the commercial real estate industry to me personally and leaders that I hadn't talked to has really, really moved me mm -hmm. and it's been appreciated. However, however, actions speak louder than words. And so I agree with you that there is a shift. It feels different, but I want to see action behind these beautiful statements. And if you want to stand with us, then you need to actually execute and have strategies. And so that's kind of where I am on that point. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about that. So let's talk about, and maybe it's easy in your business, it's a minority women-owned business, and you're the CEO, so you've been driving your own business in this direction. Right. So, so I'm a big believer that you have to be the change that you want to see. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer that diverse teams, is, it's not just about a moral imperative. It's a way to drive better outcomes and to achieve higher returns. And so study after study shows that diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams but yet that hasn't really quite, that financial imperative has not really gotten people to, to, to change. So what have I done? A couple of things. As you mentioned, we're a certified minority, minority and women-owned business. 78% mm -hmm. of my team today is comprised of women and minorities. Mm -hmm. That's point number one, because I want a diversified team. You know, I believe you can't be it if you can't see it. So if you don't see people at the top that look like you, you will definitely feel like it's gonna be a hard to impossible journey to get there. And we're gonna come back to that. Second, I have invested and loaned 800 million with other minority and woman owned commercial real estate owners and operators. Why have I done that? Because access to capital is right. so much harder for us uh -huh. and I have lived it. So I, intentionally try to identify a pipeline of owners and operators that are African-American, Latinos, people of color who are really qualified because that's the whole thing. And every one of my investments has done exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. So and I believe it's a place to find alpha. Mm -hmm. And that's about 20% of your business. If it's 800 it million is. out of your 4 billion. It is absolutely. And, and so, so that's an intentional thing. And I'm, I'm using my network to try to not only create wealth and, and um, do transactions together, but also because I believe that it, it helps to diversify who I'm investing with. Mm -hmm. and, and another couple of things, 50% of my vendors are women and minorities. We have a very intentional effort where we are trying to identify people of color in all of the different service industry, you know, providers like you know, legal, whether it's, you know, consultants for various projects, underwriters, accountants, you name it, we are out there trying to find vendors. And then finally, um, one of the things that's been near and dear to my heart um, and, and has been something that I, I wanted to do since I founded Basis was we founded Basis Impact Group. And we partner actually with Real Estate Executive Council, which as you know, is the professional trade organization that is the largest professional trade organization for African-American and Latino uh, commercial real estate executives in the United States. And our mission in both of the organizations is to create a diversity ecosystem and to provide access to opportunity for 
uh, people of color in commercial real estate. And to that end, we founded a program called Rex Real Estate Exchange four years ago. And at the end of this summer, we will have exposed 400 kids of, of color, diverse, diverse um, children to the commercial real estate industry in a summer immersion program. Mm -hmm. Our partners are major universities like Cornell and MIT. And we have you know, trade partners like Priya and NAOP and ULI and SIOR and some of the uh, organizations that have backed us. And this program, it's all about trying to create an early stage pipeline. But in addition to that, we're looking at from high school to entrepreneurship and the boardroom. And we're trying to create a diversity ecosystem that we are hoping that some of the majority firms and other trade organizations will partner with us because we can, you know, identify pipeline for positions all through, you know, from um, middle management to leadership and, and, to, and to the board. No, it's wonderful. And one thing you and I will talk about after the fact on the call is how a search firm could be helpful in thinking about that. It's been a challenge for us in identifying talent. And we go through every avenue we possibly can. And, and we often find wonderful people it doesn't fit. That's a different question. But right. the, the identification and ha having people be able to raise their hands is really, will be really powerful. And, and so what we, Real, Real Estate Executive Council is an organization that every, um, you know, search firm and, and a partner should know about because we have some of the, the most senior executives who have access to other people in our community that you know could be great candidates for for these positions. Mm -hmm. And so you said before that our industry has poked at it, but now you're hopeful that deeper change can happen. So how do you amplify those things that you've already talked about or more? How do we go further as a real estate industry? So I, I think it starts with first understanding and acknowledging that we have a problem and recognizing that it's it's a it's a problem that um, the greater majority has to be part of the solution, right? It can't just come from African-American and other people of color because we've been screaming this, you know, and, and, and jumping up and down for years talking about this. So, so that's the first step is, is, is this the moment where, where there's an acknowledgement that in the commercial real estate industry that there is, is a problem. And let me just step back by saying, if you think about the net worth of a, a Caucasian family, it's about, and depending on which study you use, 171,000, mm -hmm. give or take. The net worth of an African-American family is 17,000. And the difference on that balance sheet is real estate. Yeah. And, and so the commercial real estate industry has a tremendous opportunity to create change because we are a wealth creation, an industry that can create wealth or wealth creating industry. And so, so we, we have an opportunity here and, and we actually have, um, I think, a, an obligation here because that net worth difference is about systemic racism. It's about you know, all the things that happened historically where African-Americans just you know, did not have the same start or chance to achieve and create wealth that, that other people do, have had. And I think everyone's talking about that. Right. So the second thing is to partner to develop you know, true strategies, real concrete strategies, instead of just talking about it. And, and then the third thing, and I'm gonna come back to some of those strategies, is to execute, measure, and hold people accountable. 
And that's what we have not done. We have not, we've just, we've talked about it. We have DNI trainings, which are great. We even have some, you know, recruiting at the junior level. And then we ask ourselves, first of all, we say we can't find us. And I can tell you that every time I hear that, no offense, I get very, very upset because Mm -hmm. we are here. We're out there. I don't think that people are looking in all the right places. That's, that's my view. Secondly, we, once we get into these majority organizations, and I, I worked for the first part of my career at big institutions, right. it's really hard because you can't be it if you can't see it. You don't see the pathway. And if your board is not diverse and the leadership team is not diverse, it's really hard to, to and you know, the culture doesn't welcome you. It's, it's difficult to think that you're gonna develop um, you know, and, and, and be sponsored to, to get to that level. And so I, I ask my commercial real estate majority firms, you know, to take this call to action, to look at your boards, look at your leadership teams, look at who you're investing with and see if you're, if you're not investing with any African-Americans or other ethnic minorities that, you know, you can do something about that. Mm-hmm. There, there are ways to go about you know, starting that process of saying, you know what, we're going to commit, we're going to pledge to change our leadership team. We're going to pledge to change our boards because honestly, change, and you and I both know this, change starts at the top. It just does. It sure does. And so, so that, you know, those are some things um, that I think are important. And then having a pipeline strategy. And so, you know, we have a pipeline strategy, as I mentioned, at both Basis and and Real Estate Executive Council and Basis Impact Group, where we do understand that the commercial real estate industry is an industry that honestly has not um, has historic historically ex- excluded people of color because we just don't have the exposure to it, and so we know that we have to go back early. That's why we're starting at high school to make sure that that our high school kids who are economically disadvantaged, you know, fifty percent of them come from um, under resourced backgrounds that we expose them to this this field that they can be anything instead of just feeling like they're going to rent an apartment which is you know which is what i because i'm i'm from you know an economically disadvantaged background you know the world is their oyster is what we're teaching them and we're showing them that you don't have to rent this um apartment you can own the building Mm -hmm. and that's what we're trying to show and so so i'm excited and you know i i just want to you know to conclude on a, a more positive um no, hopefully I've been, um, I haven't been negative. I think the audience can sense that there's frustration, but also in there is optimism because I'm open to partnering with anyone to be part of the solution. And I invite people to reach out to me because I am, I'm committed. And, and I, I, I really do believe that this is a moment, that this is a time where we can all come together and, and create what I would hope will be amazing change in the commercial real estate industry. Cool. Tammy, thank you. Um, I'm going to pause for a sec and make one observation on your comments about the household net worth. And it's interesting, the real estate industry has a bigger responsibility than you suggested even because the suburbs were built with taxpayer money by our industry. And the suburbs and the programs, the FHA programs, excluded black people. You know, it's you're, you're you're my man. I'll tell you because I I can talk about that history and I and I have a, a thought leadership piece that um, I hope the, the your audience will read. Um, it was published by ULI and it's it talks about why 
investing uh, with people of color is important and what the mm -hmm. impact of diversity is. And I will share that piece with you, but it, it talks about that history because the history is so important to know. Yep. Um, it, it goes even further. It, you know, it, it really, it goes even further back than that, but, but you're right. You know, we'll leave it there with the point that, that, you know, inclusion is important because generational wealth is built yep. off of having assets. And, and so let's work together to create an opportunity for all of us to create wealth. And, and I think the commercial real estate industry can absolutely come together and figure out how, how to improve and, 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 and move forward in a way that, um, that will not just be poking at it. So, but again, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. And, uh, and Tammy, we're going to have you back for a full normal episode, although talking about these topics again on Leading Voices, I hope in, in the coming months. So I, I would love to do that. Take care. Cool. Good night. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Our next guest is Daryl Carter, a former guest on Leading Voices and the CEO of Vanath Capital Management. Well, Daryl, thank you for coming back on to Leading Voices at very short notice to be on this special episode and to talk about the aftermath and what's going to happen, we hope, after the George Floyd killing several weeks ago. But, but first, and I'll let you introduce yourself as the president of Ivanith, but just kind of a few words for our audience who haven't listened to the prior podcast and don't know you. What What is it you do in the real estate world? Ivanith owns and operates primarily affordable housing communities in 12 states. We're about half east of the Mississippi, half of the west, uh, west of the Mississippi. We're in the Bay Area. We're in Seattle, San Diego, Denver, Texas, Illinois, Michigan, New York, New Jersey, uh, the D.C., Virginia area. And, um, uh, and Maryland, and then uh, North Carolina and Florida. Uh, primarily, we own tax credit properties, project-based mm -hmm. Section 8, and other naturally occurring affordable properties. Got it. And before that, just for our listeners, you owned the first Black-owned, minority-owned DUS lender. DUS Fannie Mae Freddie yeah. Mac multifamily. Fannie Mae lender. Freddie Mac mortgage banker. Yes. Cool. And uh, you were the former chair of NMHC. Yes, I am a former NMHC chairman. Okay, there's more. <laughs> a lot of to, formers. <laughs> there's there's more stuff, but we'll leave that that alone. So tell me what what's been on your mind, what's been in your heart, what's been in your soul since this situation, since the murder, and how hopeful are you, kind of personally? How where, how do you hold this whole thing? Well, of course, like many other people, I was angry mm -hmm. and. You know, I think the first two nights of watching news, I just like, oh, my God, I, and I didn't sleep well at night. And finally, I think it was a, a week ago, Saturday, I said, you know, I'm done. I'm done watching news and I am going to um, take some actions. And I try to think of what actions I could take. I could go out and protest, you know, I, I but then I thought about not to say, I mean, that's a great thing. And my my. Uh, uh, lots of people I know did, and that's a great thing. But I sat down and said, okay, I'm a former chairman of NMHC. Yep. I know most of the CEOs of other apartment companies. Um, I'm going to reach out to them and say, hey, guys and, and gals, these are the things we need to do. And I called a number of people over the weekend who just responded. And what was surprising is the anger that they had. Mm -hmm. You know, and so 
And then I called Doug Bibby and said, Doug, we need to kind of get the apartment industry focused on it. And I did some numbers and the numbers are quite compelling. Um, if you look at the home ownership rate with, of, of African-Americans, it's about 42%, 48% for uh, Hispanics, 72% for whites. Um, so that translates into African-Americans being 58% of the rental market, uh, Hispanics 52, uh, whites uh, 28. When you do all the math, it turns out that African-Americans and Hispanics make up 40% of the apartment industry. And, you know, my message to all my peers and leaders in the, in the multifamily space is, you know, these are our customers. You know, 19% of our residents in apartment communities are African-American. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you want your customers to succeed. You want your customers to have upward mobility. You know, you want, so I felt that, you know, we had a major uh, role to play in what happens. I mean, many of us are very politically engaged in the communities we serve. Mm -hmm. uh, we provide a lot of jobs. I mean, the apartment industry, I believe, is a $3 trillion industry. And so we have some leverage. If we all gather and we do, you know, we, 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 uh, uh, we take this on. Um, you know, and and so doing things for me was therapeutic, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I sat down and wrote a letter to all of the, the 350 of uh, employees. And the first thing, my first draft was six pages. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I and I actually am going to save it for another time, maybe the book I write. But uh, one of the things I did, I, I just remember eight memorable traffic stops. And, you know, it's funny, I, you know, that happened to me. Right. And, you know, people somehow assume that, okay, maybe I'm prominent in the African, in the apartment industry and I'm a CEO, but it's happened to me. And, you know, one of the things I did recall in my letter to um, my, all my colleagues at Advanath is uh, years ago playing in a, a police athletic league that was a nighttime league. And it was a thing after the, the Detroit riots in 1967 to get inner city kids and police sort of, you know, united. And we would have basketball games that would be at eight, nine and 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And it was that time frame as well. And I was probably 16 or 17. And I remember me and three of my buddies got stopped three times after playing basketball. It was a very, very it With was the cops. Yeah. Yes. And we have police athletic league and they, they won the first time they pull us over and say, you guys are sweating. We said, yes, yes, sir. We just played basketball here. Our police athletics are saying, I'm sorry, we don't care. They handcuff us, put us on the curb. So I remember all of those and I started writing kind of what happened and, you know, and, and I'm like, no, that's, that's overkill. But I did describe to all my, my colleagues of, of the, the absurdity of a program that sought to bring police and youth, to, black youth together. Right. And we go and play basketball and it'd be great bonding. And then we go and we're a mile from the gym and we get pulled over. And, and I would always laugh and they said, well, you know, we stopped you because you fit the description. And I used to say, wow, there are a lot of six foot five armed <laughs> robbers in Detroit. <laughs> 
you know, we laugh about this, but you know, as I, as I describe that to my colleagues, I got an outpouring of, of, of notes back that, you know, you know, amongst African-American and Hispanic uh, colleagues at Havana that, you know, they were a little surprised that that happened to me, but they were also, they shared some of the things that happened to them. So all of a sudden we're having a dialogue. Right. And I think that, you know, candidly, when I talked about that with some of my good friends in the apartment business, you know, people like Tom Bazzuto and, and David Swartz and the like that, you know, not that they were, they were just shocked that that happened to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure they were shocked, but they were just like, wow, that happened to you uh, because it appears that it probably would. It, you know, it's deeply personal in a way that you have, and you've had the talk with your kids that I haven't had to have. I yes. never been stopped. My relationship with the peace is the, with the police is I don't like traffic tickets. I don't get them very often, but that's about it. And, and for you, it is, I mean, the, the views that I've heard on all these podcasts I've listening to over the last week is just eye-opening. And I'm thinking maybe when you said that you spoke to your colleagues, that, that, you know, other leaders, white leaders in the apartment business, that they were angry. You know, they were. We're pissed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Us old white guys are pissed that, the, we're, that we're leaving this world. We thought our generation was going to make this world better, and we're in the same friggin' place. So yeah. I think that's what you felt from them. I hope. Well, then, yeah. And I just said, you know what, if they're, if I, you know, and, and, and in many respects, you know, and I, I have to say this carefully, but maybe I'm not as angry because it's happened so many times and, and it's like, okay, that's what happens. And, and that's a horrible thing as well to accept something mm -hmm. like that, that happens. And, um, you know, I mean, I probably think of my last stop, which was in Newport Beach, and I had bought, I think I'd bought a new Porsche. It was something mm -hmm, fun. Mm -hmm. And it had no plates on it yet because it was brand new. And I think I'd gone to play pickup basketball. So, you know, and I've got a hat on backwards or whatever. And I get pulled over and he said, you know, this is really a nice car. Is it yours? And right. <laughs> you know, so I had to go through that and said, yes, I am. It's mine. And you know, well, it doesn't have plates, yes, but here's the, the dealer plate. And so, again, you know, you, you go through these things and, and you, you try not to let them define you. You try not to let them shape you. You move on. And, you know, maybe I'm in a different temperament where and, you know, and also haven't done anything wrong where I don't agitate. I'm very respectful and just to get through it. And I, that's what, you know, and I think that's what a lot of people and who are uh, particularly men of color, they they just learn to get through it and you move on. Yeah. How, what can we do in the industry, both generally in commercial real estate and specifically in multifamily? But how do we take steps that do does change this so this is not another fad? This is something you've lived with your life, but it feels like every time we oh outpouring of outcrying, we're done with this, but we're not. How does this become real? Well, it becomes real, number one, with economics. I mean, if you look at the apartment industry, it's huge. It's, it employs a lot of people. It provides a lot of housing. There's a lot of leverage as a group of owners we can have on a situation. Yeah. So that's number one. And using that, you know, we use that to go and, and visit with the uh, secretary of HUD, you know, and talk about affordable housing. 
you know, we could use that to go sit down with the attorney general of the United States and say, hey, this is an issue that affects our customers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing, using the platforms that we all have as leaders and very influential leaders. And, you know, as, as I go through my list of friends in the apartment industry, which I, I have numerous, but they're all people that believe in it. I mean, Rick Campo, I mean, I can go through the list, Sue Ansel, you know, mm -hmm. there's just a list of people that believe it and are equally as angry. And, and uh, you know, the other thing is I do think that we can do things at our properties. For instance, we have community forums where we bring law enforcement, police chiefs to talk to residents, which is helpful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we bring elected officials to talk to residents. One of the things in apartment communities that I, a lot of my good friends say, well, God, we don't like to do community forums because it, it organizes our residents against us. And, and that's a parochial way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I will say this, the most compelling thing that I've told a number of people in the apartment industry that gets their attention, that there is a correlation with some of the police activity and this issue of justice and the rent control issue. Mm -hmm. It's the mm -hmm. same, it's the same origin. It's the same, it's, it's a lack of empowerment. And, you know, we, landlords are sometimes viewed in the same way that police are. It's an institutional barrier for people of color. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I believe that uh, if we use our voice in this area, that it can simply help us in other areas. It, it, it gives us a better um, visibility amongst our residents. And people do some incredible things. You know, Rick Campo, uh, you know, put together $5 million assistance fund for all of his residents. And, that, you know, there, there have been exceptional things and, and uh, a lot of people are doing those things. So these are good people. I mean, the perception, unfortunately, of the apartment industry uh, you know, as a guy like Donald Sterling, but that's not the, the face of it. Right. And I, and it was on the podcast I did with Doug Bibby a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about how do you change the perception out in the world that landlord's a dirty word, developer's a dirtier word. These are words that should be at least neutral, right? But right. in your case, you're doing great work. Well, you know, it's funny. People, I you know, last time not to, to uh, you know, I'm looking for cars for my daughter and you know, one of the things I walked into a car dealership and I noticed the level of diversity with all the staff. And I said, you know, the one thing about the development community, why we've probably gone below car dealers is at least they're diverse. I mean, they may mm -hmm. screw you, but the perception is, you know, they, they have a level of diversity in people that look like you. And so the one thing we also have to do is we really have to work harder at diversity. And, and, all the everybody is committed to it, but we've got to do some things a little bit more aggressively. So there's a visibility, particularly at the leadership of our industry, that looks more like the communities that we uh, serve. We have a long way to go in that regard. You know, I, I, I yes and no. I mean, if you go to a, most apartment communities, particularly like we're vertically integrated, Mm -hmm. We have on our property management side, we have lots of diversity there. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we have been doing as a company is trying to pull people who may run, you know, people, you know, like the, 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 the last bastion of, of, um, of the real estate uh, frontier are typically acquisition teams, They're right? Generally all male. And then you go and say, well, 
you know, we need someone with acquisitions experience. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I've been telling our team is look, you know, if we have, I mean, we, we right now we have a, a, a woman who we're going to move from running an asset to uh, acquisition. She was in property management, um, a woman of color. And, you know, and, and there was a little saying, well, does she know? I said, look, we bought that property for $50 million. It's worth $95 million today, five years later, and she's run it. What have you guys done to create that much value? <laughs> and, and I just challenged, you know, and I talked to, to my partners, uh, John Williams and June Sakamoto, and I said, you know, uh, can we put our acquisition guys in her job and run that asset as well? So, you know, part of it is, I mean, you know, that's a $100 million asset for us that we've entrusted to a very, very bright woman who's run it. So you telling me we can't train her to, to acquire assets over here. Uh, so, you know, most of the leadership jobs, when you look at them that go into apartment business, it's out of asset management, it's out of the CFO, it's acquisitions, it's all the, you know, higher level, the, the away from the property. But, you know, we do have a lot of diversity in the industry, but it's just not in corporate office. Absolutely. It's in property management where the diversity, you know, historically women in that side of the business, yes. that huge, of course. And then how can you train those people to think the other side of the brain to be on the investment side? of the Well, business? I would what say they already are thinking it because they're running big assets and they're making decisions every day that impact what happens with that asset. And so, right. you know, um, but anyway, so, that's one thing. Uh -huh. Daryl. You have done a podcast where you came up with Doug Bibby recently, where you have an eight-point plan, which we're not going to have the right. time to get into here. So I will refer listeners to that conversation that you had with Doug. Any kind of final comments on how within the real estate industry, and it may be how do the white guys get poked enough to really take this seriously to make long-term change in our business? The game changer, Matt, is one thing more capital to these markets, mm -hmm. more capital in the hands of African-Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we still, when you look at institutional capital, it is way behind. Uh, and, you know, and we, we've got some barriers. Unfortunately, you know, you look at, uh, there's a structural issue is that many of these plan sponsors, particularly public plans, they cannot, they are trying to reduce their number of managers. So you have these major consolidations on the manager side and and companies that and plan sponsors that want fewer managers so and the reality of it is no one gets fired allocating money to blackstone mm -hmm. you know i mean you know and and i had a, a plan sponsor one day when i visited him and he says well i like what you do i like what your product does is you know, the returns are re really attractive. We really ought to invest. But I have one issue, you know, and he, he cited two other companies, both African-American, that had some performance issues. One was in one business, retail. One was in another business. And I said, what in the hell does that have to do with me? So you're telling me if Blackstone screws up, you're going to go to the other big companies dominated by white guys and tell them, that you're not going to give money to JP Morgan and, and, and someone else because Blackstone or BlackRock screwed up. I said, why are you painting me with a different brush? And mm -hmm. what happened, what needs to happen is the barriers 
for institutional capital to flow in communities of color and in hands of color needs to change. I mean, you look at CalPERS, uh, you know, about 45% of their, of the people who pay in to the fund are people of color and probably one or 2% manage it. That's crazy. And that, those are the discrepancies that if we can eliminate those, I think we can have change. Because at the end of the day, capital drives a lot of things, including results and economic development. If you invest in a community, you have upward mobility. If you disinvest, you have the other way. So that would be my game changer, more capital. We're out of our time, but thank you very, very much for doing this, particularly on short notice. And thank you for your heartfelt comments on all these subjects. You are welcome, Matt. Our next guest is Tyrone Roderick Williams, the Deputy Director of the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency. Tyrone, welcome to the special episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes to discuss your thoughts on the events of the last two weeks. It's been momentous, bizarre, and exciting. Well, I, uh, I really do appreciate the opportunity to uh, share my perspectives and be a part of the, uh, the, the podcast. I've listened uh, to so many of your podcasts, and I'm just honored to be uh, a part of this activity today. Well, thank you, and a particular thank you, because you were one of the folks who really suggested that we do an episode and uh, so we've put it together, and, and you, you get to be one of our voices. But first, Tyrone, just for our guests, who are you, where are you, and for context, talk about what you do in the real estate world. Okay. Well, uh, I've spent uh, most of my entire career in uh, many different aspects of real estate development, um, primarily leading kind of large-scale multi-redevelopment uh, activities. And uh, it's brought me, uh, I'm originally from outside Houston, Texas, and so I've gone from Houston to Boston to Atlanta and now in Sacramento. And here in Sacramento, um, I'm at our agency, at the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency, I'm responsible for all of the real estate development, affordable housing, finance, community development. There's never a dull moment at SHRA because we are a multi-jurisdictional agency. So we serve the, the county of Sacramento, the city of Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, we are the housing authority for the city. We're the housing authority for the county. And we serve other cities in our region. So uh, it, it, it's, a, it's quite an opportunity to, uh, to lead in such a uh, broad way and have such a significant impact in our region. Perfect. Well, we'll talk in a few minutes about how things may change based upon the events of the last two weeks. But let's just talk a little bit personally about this. For At least from my standpoint, white guy in the 60s, for years and years, it, it just, this keeps happening. And it feels like the events of the last two weeks may be the moment that sparks real change around racial injustice in our country. What are your overall thoughts about this as a citizen, a human being, and a black man in our country at this time? Well, uh, you know, in uh, this has been uh, probably the most gut-wrenching mm. uh, from a social standpoint, uh, two weeks of my life. And uh, 
it, it, I think the, the greatest part of that is because we keep coming back to the same place. And in, in 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book called The, uh, the Souls of Black Folk. And it is a must read, I think, at this point in our, in our nation's history, because in 1903, we were grappling with the exact same things that we are grappling with today. And uh, so I think not only me, but I think the souls of black folk all over the world have been stirred. And that stirring really, I think, is a result of so many years of insults and humiliations and, and kind of trying to put things behind us, you know, uh, having, I think for me, what I've been doing for most of my career is trying to pack down things so that they you can move on so that you aren't held hostage by mm -hmm. things. But there's only so much packing down that's possible. I, even landfills end up closing because they're full. I think in America, we are full. We have reached the limit of just allowing things to remain the same and looking the other way. I, I, uh, I got into real, this, this industry as a result of being a student at Purdue View A&M University in architecture, and the campus was undergoing um, a transformation plan, and all I saw were white men coming to do the planning for the, our historically black college. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was enraged and said, you know what, from here on out, I, not only do I want to do architecture, but I want to understand architecture, construction, financing. I want to know how to sell it. I want to know how to lease it. I don't ever want there to be anybody to say we can't have competent, experienced black people as part of leading our effort because they aren't qualified or we don't know where they are. And I, uh, I've i seen that repeated over throughout my career. And uh, I, but however, instead of Taking my experiences and, and using the insults and the seeing what has happened over the course of my life is instead of embracing kind of rage or revenge at this point in my life, I'm committed to using the, the rest of my life to change, to be an age, agent of change in, in organizations and companies at the state, local and, and, and national level. And I'm engaged in that now, but I am more determined than ever to expand my visibility and expand my my network with real estate executives who are not only just hearing about change, but just like me are committed to changing their organizations and better serving their customers. Wow. And what's, what's interesting, I mean, I asked you the question of your experience as a black man and the experience as a white man, I, I've always had it kind of. But what I'm seeing, which is really, it feels like there's an outpouring from the entire country on the same subject together. I haven't felt that together commitment to something in my life yet. Well, I, I think we're at a crucial point um, because I think we've been saying it. I know we've been saying it of course, for hundreds of years, but the issue of just uh, having seen and experienced on a regular basis throughout our society the whole the idea of a white privilege. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's that that is a catalytic word for many people. When you say white privilege, you you automatically create two camps. Those who saying you're being an extremist and unrealistic and and others who who've been saying it's real, it's embedded in the DNA of our society. And until we all recognize that and begin to address it instead of ignoring it or minimizing it or marginalizing it, the issue of white privilege is is really the cancer that is eating away at our country. And I think it's time to provide some healing and some, in some cases, some radical surgery. Understood. And last comment on this, before we move to what do we do, is... I, Again, a 60-year-old white man, I've never felt white privilege as much as I ever have before through COVID. COVID has amplified it. It may have also amplified it on the other side of anger, too. Well, I think we've been laid bare. Yep. Uh, and so, but we're at a critical point, and I believe we're going to, with all of the attention that it's getting, not only here but around the world, we are, a, we are in a position to move this country forward instead of continuing to, to delay its advancement. Yes, sir. Okay. And so I'm t- happy. I'm, I'm excited about that. And that's really what I'm committing my efforts to. Uh, and I'm happy to do that. That gives me hope. That's what, that's what allows me to move forward instead of being consumed with anger and rage. Beautiful. So we don't have a lot of time here. Talk about what you will do, what you can do within your agency internally. I'll ask three questions and go wherever you want. One within the agency internally. Two, about how the agency changes at work in the world. And then three, how can we move the real estate industry to itself be more inclusive and then also to support true social change? Well, at the local level, at our agency, we've not... Uh, uh, you, we've been engaged in organizational and culture change over the last five to six years. And so we've, first of all, committed to a change of the culture of our agency because real estate, our agency is the, the, the premier real estate, um, agency for the region, but it had a culture of exclusivity. Mm. and uh, entitlement. And we've moved far from that. We've developed a diversity and inclusion plan. We have steps. We have meetings. We've done surveys. And now we are the most diverse and inclusive agency in the region when it comes to hiring, when it comes to our executive team, when it comes to serving our clients. Um, we've made those changes, and now we've implemented leadership development programs so that our lower level staff have an opportunity to share with the executive team their abilities and their interests, and we know who's in the ranks that we can begin to look at promoting as opportunities become available. So that's what we are doing in our in our own agency. Mm-hmm. Um, what we are doing for the through our company and the work and the financing because we finance my department finances. 99.99% of all of the affordable housing programs provides, you know, um, down payment assistance to all of the, uh, lenders. So we're at the core. We're at the core of making a difference. But one, you know, you build a new project and then you got to deal with gentrification. But 
We all of our projects have a minimum of a 55 year affordability period that can be renewed. So we're looking at that's one way in which long term we're talking long term impact. Mm -hmm. I'm also the director of the Sacramento Promise Zone, which is a 10 year initiative that not just deals with the physical environment of building buildings and housing, but it looks at education, healthcare, jobs, economic development, sustainable development, and that's a 10 year initiative. And we're actively engaged in those underserved communities. So that's what we're doing. We're hey, also let me ask you a question building... about that. Is there, it feels in the business that while our subsidized housing in particular has done an amazing job, it's also concentrated housing in those areas where that are already low income. And it hasn't brought people of color into communities of opportunity. How can you change the local discussion? I don't know the track record in Sacramento, but talk about how we can, that kind of change can happen as well. Well, there, there are multiple ways, and we're engaged with one. We are, my department's in, right now building Sacramento's newest, greenest, mixed-income community on the site of our former public housing uh, uh, community. But we've got all those replacement units on site, but we've expanded that for, you know, um, affordable housing as well as market rate. So wherever what we're doing and through our housing choice voucher program, which is also in our agency, we're giving people opportunities to move out of areas of high concentration of poverty to make choices on their own. And California has been unique in this instance because we passed laws that um, eliminate discrimination against housing choice voucher holders or section what was formerly Section 8. So we've eliminated that one barrier, and we're looking at everything that we could do to build and support inclusive, economically diverse communities. I, I hope that the changes among the population and give you the additional tools and willingness for the community to accept that and promote that and make that happen. Well, everything we do involves uh, the community. The communities are our members, are our stakeholders. They're the people that we serve. So we're committed at every level to ex make sure that not only do we ask them about how they feel or what they sense that they need, but that we're holding ourselves accountable to actually implementing and then reminding them, you said you needed this. Here it is. We heard you. Uh, and and uh, we have a, a, a positive relationship with the community regarding that. We've earned their trust because they see that we follow through on what we say we're going to do just like we say we're going to do it. Cool. So talk nationally. Talk about the real estate industry and your voice within the industry, but then how the industry can be promoting this, not just for diversity among our ranks, but in the work that we do. Well, um, because of my role here at the agency, but I also serve um, at the state level on the advisory board to the Public Utilities Commission and the Energy Commission. So we deal with things on a statewide level all across the country, uh, I mean, all across our state. But what I'm seeing in our industry, one, when we talk about the multifamily industry, the, getting back to the discrimination that occurs with housing choice vouchers holders is one that really can be changed yep. very quickly. It's just by changing our policy. 
and they are discriminatory and they are contributing to uh, undue stress and strain on families who are trying to access neighborhoods of opportunity. Uh, the other thing, I think, is being engaged in listening to your customers. Uh, they can inform you about where the challenges are and guide you in addressing those challenges and needs. And so that's what we, I, I really see as a tremendous opportunity. Talk to the people who you are impacting and hear them when they talk back to you. I think that one of the first things as an industry, we must admit that there is a problem. And you got, and once you admit that there's a problem, you have to acknowledge that you need help to correct it. Mm -hmm. If you don't get help, you cannot expect to correct a problem that exists in our industry and maybe even in your organization without getting people to assist you. Because if you really understood how deep the problem was, maybe you would have corrected it before now. Uh, and I think that that contributes to the culture of companies. We have so I always, you know, when I'm looking at companies, the, one of the first things I look at is what is the what is the diversity at the executive level? And so many uh, of the executive team uh, leadership in the real estate companies uh, don't truly reflect diversity. And I think that now is the time for every agency and organization to question, are we diverse? And if we are not, what can we do to change that? immediately. And one of those changes is looking at hiring uh, men and women of color at the executive level. Uh, I, I, I shared that, you know, when I was at Purdue as a student, they were saying, oh, we can't find good people to be uh, on our team. That is uh, not true. We are here. We've been here. The key is looking at diversifying your organization through expanding the executive search firms that you hire, mm -hmm. um, you may not know yeah. where uh, people of color are, but they do. And uh, by hiring them, looking at having uh, people of color on your board. I've gone through board training and I've talked to so many of my colleagues. We've positioned ourselves to be in places of influence and impact. And it's, we've heard about the glass ceiling, but I think for people of color on serving on boards of directors, there's a glass wall. And uh helping us move through that so that your organization is better positioned to be successful in this new era is uh, something I think everyone should look and be actively engaged in. And then the third, the, the, the last thing I'm going to say, and I talked about recruiting, as a graduate of an HBCU, that's Historically Black College, mm -hmm. I would encourage everyone, if you are recruiting at the college level, to seek out opportunities to be a part of the recruiting teams at historically black colleges. We have phenomenal, well-educated and well-positioned students of color who are very interested in all aspects of real estate development and are perfectly poised to help you achieve your goals in this new uh, society. Uh, I'm calling the, you know, the post-George uh, Floyd uh, society. And uh, I would encourage you to, to consider that as well. Totally true. Thank you. It's interesting. Our industry develops billions and indeed trillions of dollars of infrastructure. Once it's there, it's it's kind of hard. It's hardscaped, right? And we can do it with the intention to have an influence on these outcomes in a big way. 
So there's a, there's a tremendous amount to do. Your comments are all right on target. Um, Tyrone, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's been my pleasure. My next guest is Robin Hughes, the CEO of Abode Communities, a nonprofit housing organization based in Los Angeles. Uh, Robin and I have worked together, but I don't think we've ever met. Now I'm seeing her face-to-face on the Zoom here. (laughs) And I looked up your bio this morning and had no idea with your broader leadership, about your broader leadership roles within the industry. You're the board chair of the Housing Partnership Network, which we'll talk about. You serve on the Housing Advisory Board for the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, and you're on the board of one of my favorite organizations, the Community Development Trust. I could keep going, but let's... (laughs) Stop there and let you say a few words to orient our listeners to who you are and what your role is within the real estate world. Wonderful. Well, Matt, thank you for having me um, for this podcast, especially at this moment in time. I really appreciate you reaching out to me for this discussion. Um, So I have dedicated my career to this world of economic and community development And it comes from a place of my own background, um, living here in Southern California and particularly in South uh, Los Angeles, growing up in the community there and recognizing the severe impact that disinvestment had on uh, the communities where I grew up. And it was um, driven in me to be part of a sector, an industry that was all about reinvesting in communities Mm -hmm. um, so that people could thrive and and grow. And so I was very fortunate that very young in my career, um, I was given this opportunity to join Abode Communities. Um, So I've sort of grown up with this company. I have been the president and CEO for the past 24 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been a great organization to, to lead. It's interesting to reflect back on our organizational history. We came out of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. We were originally the Los Angeles Community Design Center. Mm-hmm. And we were one of many design centers created throughout the country as a way for the architecture profession to engage in the civil rights movement through the physical built environment. And so it's, it's very um, refreshing as I reflect back on uh, how my organization came to be in this space. Uh, and today, while our work is uh, seated in primarily the production and preservation of affordable housing, I really like to think of our work as being transforming communities and placemaking, and in particular, um, transforming the lives of the residents who live in our affordable housing development. Um, So we own about 40 uh, affordable housing developments here in Southern California, Mm -hmm. have began to work up in the Bay Area. We serve over 10,000 low-income residents. And the quality of our affordable housing means that we are providing access to both affordable, high-quality, well-designed, and well-managed affordable housing. Um, But I think the part that I get most excited about is our resident services program, which I'll talk about a little more. That's really um, focused on, you know, we believe that affordable housing is that stabilizing force in the lives of families, but our resident services program is really about uh, working with the people who live in our affordable housing to um, empower them to continue uh, on their path of greater social and economic self-sufficiency. Wonderful, wonderful. So, so talk about the last couple of weeks. Um, it 
this has been an ongoing thing. Every two years, something horrendous happens, although something horrendous happens every day. Yeah. And do you think that this time might be different to cause some permanent shift in the perspectives of our world to really do something about, make some change? Yeah. Um, I know that I'm like many people, especially African-Americans, who have just been overwhelmed with a range of emotions uh, over the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, I know my first initial uh, emotion was really heartbreak. You know, anyone who watches the video of um, George Floyd's death and the brutal part of his death, their heart is just broken. And as a mother... Uh, and an aunt and a sister, mm-hmm. you know, I could, you know, only imagine that this could have been um, a nephew, a brother, a close friend. And it was just heartbreaking uh, to see that happen. And, you know, that quickly followed by anger and frustration that was continuing to happen, mm-hmm. that we see it happening um, almost on a weekly basis, a daily basis, where in particular young African-American men uh, are being brutally um, either caused deep grief or uh, unfortunately killed uh, in the hands of what is supposed to be our criminal justice system. So that anger and frustration definitely boiled up. And then, of course, you know, we, we go to this place of despair and hope and hopelessness that nothing is going to change that we are we have such deeply uh systemic racism bigotry um that the system is not going to change but i think this time um i will say for me personally i've been inspired by Mm -hmm. the voices that have been out on the streets and in particular after we got beyond the noise of the protest and, and really focused on the, I'm sorry, I would say of the riots. Right. Uh, and really focused on the peaceful protest and lifting up um, the conditions uh, and experiences of, of Black people in our country. And the diversity of the people who are out there uh, lifting their voice up uh, around this issue. But I have to say that I'm, I'm, I haven't reached that place of, hopefulness yet, (laughs) that we will see long-term and systemic change. Um, I'm, I, I want it to be, um, but I also am, am reluctant to believe that it will happen in the near term. I think, um, we will begin to, to see some change. I think the change will continue to be incremental. But I don't think this country is ready to face the core of why we, um, in the history of racism, bigotry, especially in our criminal justice system yet. And that's the part that concerns me and takes me perhaps back to my first feeling of you know, heartbreak. So, hmm. I, And I, I wonder so much about the difference between hopefulness and heartbreak. And uh-huh. I've, I've, I have don't want this to be the... I'm fearful this will be the cause of the week. And then we'll go back to it happens again. And, and it will happen again in a year. But, you know, but it, we, it, can, fundam- it can fundamentally change if it's not the cause of the week. And I, that terrifies me. Yes. And, you know, it's been very um, interesting hearing different voices this time. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, you know, corporate America... Uh, mm-hmm 
speaking out about this. We have, um, you know, looking up sort of folks in the real estate industry speaking out about this. And, and so now it's more, we have to do more than speak about it. We have to practice it. We have to engage. We have to take our positions of power and influence and become allies in this effort to um, make systemic change happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the important part of, of as to whether or not we're going to see long-term change today. So let's talk about that. So let's talk about this within your organization, maybe the easiest part. Let's talk mm-hmm. about it within the communities you serve. And then how do we move the industry and the broader industry, both in terms of the people who work within the industry to have diversity of, of uh, leaders within the business, but then out in the community as well? We all have responsibility. So our work at Abode Communities is grounded in social and economic justice, Mm -hmm. um, housing as a right, equal access to housing um, is what our organization does. We do it by building housing and we do it by advocating for policy and um, program changes that uh, address issues of equity and equality. Um, So as I think about the role of my organization, I feel like my job and our job is to continue to bring uh, high quality affordable housing to a range of families, but also in a range of communities that we're bringing uh, in in a number of places um, to to bring that access uh, more broadly. So I start with building more housing. We, Mm -hmm. we We just simply cannot allow even the economic conditions that we're faced with to um, slow down the production of housing and in particular affordable housing. Now more than ever, uh, we need to make sure that people have access to housing that they can afford. Uh, and we all know that low-income people and people of color have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, but will also be disproportionately impacted as we go into the economic crisis that we're about to face. So we definitely need to continue to, to provide that, um, that safety net. Again, thinking about where Abode Communities uh, was founded, um, I think we could do a better job and we all can do a better job of engaging the community and the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had wonderful opportunities to do pretty comprehensive community engagements, but it's been rare uh, in, in our experience. And we have staff who are very committed to it, but finding the resources, the time, the space to do it um, sometimes becomes an impediment. So I think we can do better as an organization in making sure that we're engaging diverse communities and including them uh, very early in our process uh, and how we, we do our business. We, of course, need to continue to advocate for housing policy that addresses the issues of race, equity, and inequality and eliminates um, policy that promotes racism and inequity. And um, we're, we're very good at positioning ourselves to advocate for financial resources to support our housing production, mm-hmm. but we should dig beneath our housing policies at the national, state, and local level to make sure that those policies are not um, indirectly or indirectly uh, in, um, impacting people of color. Um, So whether it's land use, how we do our land use, um, where and how we build our housing, those things are really important. 
I also think it's important for organizations like Abode Communities to become allies with other organizations that are addressing social and economic justice and systemic change. Uh, the one that I think about, if you looked at the fundamental challenge of housing affordability, it is income inequality. Um, so organizations like Abode Communities need to join with uh, organizations who are fighting to make sure that all people are paid a living wage, that all people are able to get uh, fair employment. Uh, areas like that, which again, um, if you have economic security, then it's more likely that you'll have housing security. And then lastly, just internally in my organization, um, you know, it's been great to be on these Zoom calls because you get to see your staff more often on the screen. And I always really appreciate the diversity that we have within my own organization for on, on a range of things. But I don't think we talk about it enough as an organization and are um, it's as front and center and thoughtful around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what that means for us uh, as people working for both communities. So I definitely think that that is an area as a company that we can focus uh, a great deal more on. Mm -hmm. Qu question, I wonder about this, the concentration of low-income housing within low-income neighborhoods is, is one of the crises of our industry, and NIMBYism is a crisis of our industry, and it may be that NIMBYism is strengthened by the fear of density coming out of COVID, or maybe the combination of the fear of COVID and COVID and Black Lives Matter causes neighborhoods to be willing to be inclusive to know that this is important. Do you think that NIMBY thing gets easier, harder, or is just always here with us? Can this change the conversation for that? Or are you hopeful on that? So unfortunately, I think it is um, NIMBYism will always be with us in some form or fashion. Um, just as we have as an industry um, had to engage, inform, educate everyone about what affordable housing is, who lives in affordable housing, who we serve, how it's managed. I think one of the things that will come out of this, at least it's been our own experience, is that I truly believe that people who are living in high quality affordable housing with, especially with services that uh, like Abode Communities provides, will, will fare better during this COVID period um, than people who are living in market rate housing. P our residents have access to resources to help them make sure that they have income coming in if they've lost their jobs. They have um, access to resources to connect them to uh, aid uh, in the community. Um, they're living in healthy environments, uh, which make a difference. So, you know, I'm happy to report that our, um, uh, the, the rate in which our residents have been impacted from a health standpoint by this crisis is pretty low. And I think that's reflective of the affordable housing industry. I think, our role in all of this as we continue to expand where we do our work and how we do our work, we'll continue to be engaging and educating people, including NIMBYs about affordable housing and dispelling uh, the myths that I think people continue to have about who lives in housing, how it's managed and what it means for their neighborhoods and their, the, the local economy. Hmm. Last question, the industry. 
So tra- trade groups, Urban Land Institute, HPN, Housing Partnership Network, Nonprofit Network. How do, how do we also move the needle in terms of bringing new leadership and particularly black leaders and Hispanic leaders into this business? So uh, again, it's been really um, interesting to hear leaders even within the real estate sector come out and speak against uh, what's currently occurring in our communities and in our nation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been critically important that they that there's action behind those words. So um, Matt, I'm not telling you something that you don't already know. Yeah, is when I go to a ULI, a ULI conference, uh, I am one of the few African Americans there, and definitely the few women of color at these conferences. Yep. So there needs to be a continued effort to. Uh, engage African-American leadership within the, the real estate world. There definitely um, should be more discussion and action about some supporting and promoting uh, African-Americans in real estate into leadership roles. Uh, and if we, again, if we look across the spectrum, we will see, yes, um, women have definitely made some progress in moving into leadership roles. But if you look at the major largest real estate companies, they're still all headed by white men. So what can this industry do to you know, bring up young people uh, through their company into leadership roles? I think that is really critical. I also think it's important to think about where we build and invest real estate. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, I think about social investment and what social investment means. And I think it's important that investors in real estate consider the, and recognize the value of the social return on investment while also getting a reasonable economic return on investment. That so much of the decision-making around where capital sits within this country is driven by return and profit. And there's so much return that we can get from social investment um, that will be recognized um, at the community level, the individual level, but I think at the national level and ultimately uh, within the the balance sheet and pockets of of real estate companies. So I think it's really important that the way in which investment is made shifts a little, that it's not all about an economic return. In the same vein, it's also about where people are building. Just like we should be building affordable housing everywhere in our cities, market rate developers, retail developers, commercial developers should also be looking at emerging communities, low-end communities as places to make good investment to create economic opportunities for the people who are living in those communities. And then lastly, I think it's important that, you know, all of those issues that we work on as an organization, um, that that applies across the real estate sector, that um, as leaders in this sector, that we are promoting and advocating for policies and programs that promote fair housing, that promote equity and inclusion, and that um, really disbands the old um, disparities and inequities that we sometimes see both in how, well, in how lending is done, how land use is done, how real estate is developed. Let's think about how we can re-examine and reposition those things. 
All true. Uh, Robin, we're going to continue this conversation on a future episode of Leading Voices. There were some comments in there that definitely we have to delve into. Uh, investment in communities dis- and uh, uh, there, there's there's a there's a lot to keep going on. So um, I want to thank you, and we will keep talking. Well, Matt, I really appreciate this time and this platform to have a voice. So thank you so much for having me. Our next guest is my business partner, Bill Whitlow of Terra Search Partners. Bill, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts about this moment in time. Happy to be here, Matt. I will let you introduce yourself to our audience so that they understand uh, what you do in the real estate world and kind of a little bit about your background. Uh, I'm a partner at Terra. I've been at Terra for 12 years. Uh, Terra uh, is... Um, is completely focused on the real estate industry. Um, I'm a real estate professional, 25 years in real estate, 12 years at Terra Search. Uh, and so from my perspective, that's, uh, that uh, comprises the perfect pairing of uh, backgrounds and skill set. Mm-hmm. And, and Bill, talk about the events of the last two weeks. I'll, I won't even preface it to describe what the events have been because our listeners know, but what's it been like for you personally, kind of your personal journey around this, and then think of it in the context of the work world in which we spend most of our time? Yeah, well, it's, um, it's personally for me been, and I think the way I would prefer to answer the question is by using three words, uh, anger, pain, and hope. That's an interesting collection of, yeah. of words, but if I could just for a moment, let me explain each. Mm-hmm. So anger, because until George Floyd, honestly, I almost forgotten how every black male uh, in America has a reality, okay? Uh, within the context of corporate America, and you know this, um, you know, I've, I've done pretty well, but the past several weeks have really served as a reminder that I live in a bubble, Matt, and that bubble can burst any time. For example, you know, I could have an expired registration uh, sticker on my car and I know it, get pulled over by a cop who just has had a bad day, um, and his bad day could become my worst nightmare. So if nothing else, the past few weeks have reminded every black American male, in particular male, mm-hmm. that regardless of socioeconomic status, Joy, George Floyd could have easily, very easily been them or been me. Mm-hmm. Uh, pain, because it pains me to acknowledge that, think about it, the affirmative action initiatives, all the initiatives of the 70s, uh, they the completely vanished under the Reagan years have had no successor programs, at least pr- to the best of my knowledge. So consequently, providing opportunity for, for black Americans has really been left up to business leaders uh, to decide either to do something about the fact that they look around their boardroom or their executive table and realize there are no black or brown faces and do something about it. Or whether it's just simply easier to stick with the status quo, because pursuing the alternative is just too long and too difficult of a process. And especially these days, mm-hmm. under, uh, under Donald Trump, our president, it's just too controversial. So oftentimes, business leaders simply won't go there and make the effort. 
And then lastly, hope, because in my lifetime, this is the first time where I truly believe that we're on the precipice of long-term change. I don't know whether or not it's going to happen, but today we have an opportunity not just to rewrite the script of policing, uh, but to rewrite the script to achieve racial equality in this country. And maybe I'm being naive, but I truly believe this can occur. Hmm. And, and how have you seen the evidence of hope and how do you feel that we can get our claws into making real change that will be lasting? I think the evidence of hope I see, we see every day on the, on the tube. Mm-hmm. Okay? Look at who's protesting. Look at who's standing up. Look at who uh, is making their voices heard. In the 60s, you know, they were mostly people of color. These days, you look at television and you look at who's protesting and uh, you realize people of color might actually be in the minority. Mm-hmm. And I've never, never seen, seen that before in this country. So I, I, I know that's uh, sort of a, a dumbed down version of, uh, hey, look at, the, look at the people, look who's protesting. There's hope in that, but I really believe there is hope in that because we won't get anything done unless it's collective effort, not just uh, an effort of a few. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about being a black man in the real estate world. And you've been a real estate professional for 40 years, and you're now a recruiter in the real estate world. <laughs> and I, we do searches, right? And there, there, there'll be a search with no women. You can't even find a woman in some of the definitions. And even more common, not a black or brown face at all in, a, in an assignment. And some we go look for it, and we succeed at that. But just talk about what has been for you walking through this world, and then think of it in the business that we have. Well, you, you heard me uh, chuckle. Uh, as you were posing the question of, wow, a black man in real estate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, it, first of all, um, I think I represent within the real estate industry, mm-hmm. as do a, a handful of other black professionals who have had success. Uh, I think that I represent an illusion, an illusion that um, uh, things have gotten better, an illusion that anyone uh, can succeed if they want to. Just look at Bill Whitlow. And, uh, and, you know, in a strange way, it's counterproductive. Um, My success is counterproductive because people use that to point and say, look, if he can do it, you can do it. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you people? Stop complaining. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Succeed. And But it's, it's uh, you know as well as I do within real estate, um, finding people of color is a difficult thing to do. Okay, Not impossible. I remember 30 years ago when I got in this business and moved to the Bay Area, we put together a group of uh, black real estate professionals, commercial real estate professionals in the Bay Area. It was a group of 30. Mm. Okay. I don't know how many of those folks are even in the business anymore. You, you think about the top real estate executives on the West Coast, 
And there were three, maybe four names that come to mind. But guess what? Those have been the, if you asked me that question 30 years ago, when I first got into this business, it were the same three or four names. Mm-hmm. So uh, things have just not changed that much in our industry, if at all. Mm. In any sense, is that a pipeline issue? Is that an issue of, hey, I'm a young, smart, assertive, ambitious African-American man. I'm going to go do tech. <laughs> I'm going to go be a lawyer. <laughs> I'm going to go do this. Like, is real estate come up and how do we make it come up? Well, look, uh, real estate's not the, uh, if you think about the top 10 professions, in America, um, the, the top, uh, the, the best known professions in America, I don't think real estate ranks among them. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it is t- difficult to kind of understand. Um, there aren't uh, that many real estate programs uh, throughout colleges in America. Uh, we uh, sit around the table at NMHC. I'm a member of NMHC's diversity committee, mm-hmm. and we talk about that all the time. We've um, talked about uh, making real estate more commonplace in college curriculum. We talk about recruiting at colleges. We talk about growing people up, giving them exposure as they grow to real estate, but we've actually n- never gotten anything done in any of those areas at this point in time. But uh, I think lack of exposure the industry's lack of expo- exposure, especially among people of color, is certainly a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think that's the I don't think that's the only problem. I think we uh, are members of a fairly conservative industry, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that uh, among the conservative members of our industry, you know, that they're thinking about diversity. I think they are right now. So that's this is our opportunity. I'll I'll ask a couple questions, or I'll, I'll volley the comment, which is one: this is an industry where someone can have great financial success, and two, it's an industry where someone could have a great impact on their communities, particularly communities of black and brown people. I was on one of our guests of on this podcast is going to be Daryl Carter. And, you know, we talked about 40% of the residents of apartments are black and brown people, if not more. And gosh, we could be impacting in a positive way at the same time as making some good money, um, those populations. So well, it's- I, I, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree in that regard. Hey, we do as much work in affordable housing, as you know, is in conventional housing. Right. Uh, within the multifamily sector, I think there's a lot of good work that's being done there. Uh, and certainly there's a, a lot of value you create by providing folks with a clean, affordable, safe place to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is if they even I mentioned the word affordable, that is if they can still afford the rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the issues go a lot deeper than that. Housing is certainly one of them. Um, but it's just one of uh, a number of issues that we're facing. And back to this, in my opinion, being the precipice for change here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, all of those issues are identified and addressed. And it's not just a policing issue. It's a much broader systemic issue that we're facing and that we need solutions for. Mm-hmm. And. Last comments, any on what, as an industry specifically, we can focus on what we could do that is long-term change. 
uh, both in terms of the people we bring into the industry and who become leaders in the industry and in terms of what our business does out in the world? Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I'll tackle the, the last first. Um, and what I, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to steal a page from a, a, another real estate firm's playbook. Uh, recently, I've had a conversation with uh, the executive of a firm that has uh, created uh, some initiatives within his firm in order to address sort of the overall lingering issue of inequality in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just going to read a number of bullet points uh, of, uh, of initiatives he's created. And, and I think there are takeaways for everyone in our business. Uh, from these bullet points. One, he has pledged to donate a small percentage of all revenues to charitable organizations, but organizations really committed to protecting and advancing and uplifting folks in the black community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's cur- encouraging his business partners to do exactly the same thing. Um, and to make sure that they're held accountable, uh, he's designated a charitable advisor to ensure that uh, this particular firm continues to meet its stated goals in maximizing its efforts. This may sound familiar to you. I'm not sure. Yes, it okay. does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> but it, it really caught my attention because I believe that these are things everyone can do or at least consider doing. Um, one of the, the other items on his list is uh, because uh, this particular organization is a multifamily investment firm. Mm-hmm. They've created a companion nonprofit uh, to provide direct rental subsidies to black essential workers uh, and to cultivate employment opportunities for black professionals within the multifamily industry. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also requiring uh, that anti-racism and uh, racial equity training uh, be provided to all employees, as well as the third party firms that they utilize to, to, to manage their portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps last but not least, it's a, I think a fairly easy thing to do mm-hmm. is they're making election day a paid holiday for their employees, uh, <laughs> and also volunteering their own properties as registered polling, uh, locations and encouraging employees to volunteer as poll workers. And I'm sure if we all put our sort of shoulder to the wheel, we could think of, uh, things to add to this list, uh, just to, begin to make a difference. Yeah, it's interesting. It's full cycle to what you talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And we will put a thumbs up and kudos to Jordan Moss at Catalyst Housing, who that's his statement. And we'll post that on the podcast link on this one so you can find Mm -hmm. him. But what it is, is it's soulful and it matters and it's from the heart. And it's true and it's true through his life. And I think this moment for many white people more than we ever believed, right? Is we got caught with our pants down. We weren't doing the job that we believed in for our whole lives. And we found this place with George Floyd. And at least on the white guy side of it, it was like, holy shit, where was I? Where was I during my mature years and allowing it to be this bad? Hey, Matt, it's not just on the white guy side. It's on the black guy side too. And people like me, I go back to, uh, I've, I've been reawakened. Okay. I, I, I'm charged up about making a difference. When Jordan called, uh, I, it, it, 
it was an easy yes for me to volunteer in a program that he is kickstarting at UC Davis uh, in, in terms of mentoring and coaching uh, black student athletes at UC Davis. So I'm eager to get started in that regard, but that's just the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, last thing, uh, I had an interesting uh, conversation with a client who mm-hmm. I won't name yesterday. Mm-hmm. And we, he, was, he was aware enough to reach out and ask me how I was doing, which spoke volumes about this client. The, the, every, it's easy to reach out and ask folks how they're doing in light of COVID. It's not what he meant. He meant, how am I doing in light of all of the social unrest? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we bantered back and forth for a good portion of the day. But, you know, at one point he said, look, you should be really proud of the good work that you've done, the good work you've done for us. You found us a couple of key minority candidates as executives to help me run my firm. Mm-hmm. And my response was, you know what, that's just not good enough. I appreciate that. It's a nice little pat on the back, but it's just not good enough. And there's so, so much more that I can and will do uh, to make sure that um, there is racial racial equality in America. That's wonderful. Let's, um, Bill, thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, We have work to do at Terra Search Partners in this regard, so we will keep talking about that as well. But thank you for being in the podcast. And uh, of course, we'll keep talking. Yes, we will. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate the opportunity. Our final guest is Cedric Bobo, a prior guest on Leading Voices and the co-founder of Project Destined. Cedric Bobo, I will welcome you back to Leading Voices. Uh, You're still in your kitchen. I was in your kitchen when we talked uh, a year ago on Leading Voices, but you're still there sheltering in place as I am in California. I hope this finds you well, but sheltering in place meant one thing up to two weeks ago, and then after George Floyd, it's meant a whole different thing. First of all, Cedric, tell us briefly who you are, for those who didn't hear the prior podcast, and what your role is in the real estate world, and then we'll get into your experiences through all this. Of course, and and thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. It's an incredible time to be a storyteller, uh, and, and frankly, we need people like you to keep the conversation going, so I'm grateful for the chance to chat. So I'm the co-founder of Project Destin. You know, our work is really centered around you know, an education platform that delivers obviously high quality training, but really the focus is on access and creating a new generation of owners inside of real estate. Uh, and so our role is really working with leaders in real estate, um, whether it's Brookfield or Westfield or many others, and really working with them to create new opportunities for students to engage in this great sector. And how long's the program been going and what's your kind of how many people have been involved so far just to get a sense of size and scale? No, of course. So we launched in 2016. As you know, I spent, you know, over 15 years in private equity, the tail end at the Carlisle Group. But as you know, I was always always wanted to be a real estate investor. Uh, and so we launched in 2016 in Detroit, really focused on a set of I mean, a community that had come through a very difficult time economically. Uh, and they were seeing their city going through a renewal. And I think many people felt they didn't have a way to participate. Mm-hmm. And so we really started as really a, an education service going into a city, trying to give people a chance to become owners in their community. So that was our start. And I think we've trained, I mean, as of now, probably close to 
seven, eight hundred students around the country. Oh, that's incredible. So, so Cedric, talk for a few minutes about your experience over the last two weeks. You could choose for this to be a personal comment or a work comment or both. And and with the question for me is, does does this time change things? So maybe that's the those are those are questions. Well, I think the I mean the last two weeks. I mean, I think I speak for most people where where we all can agree. It's been an incredible period to listen, reflect, learn. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I watched a guy who, you know, shares my ethnic background, you know, murdered openly in the street. Um, and that's obviously tremendously unsettling. And I'm from, you know, I'm from northern Mississippi where, you know, racism is not certainly, certainly not new to me. Uh, but to see it happen openly uh, in 2020 is disturbing. Uh, what I've been proud of is just uh, the incredible focus for leaders around the country uh, of really listening, reflecting, learning. Uh, and I think to answer your question, you know, the question is, how do we translate words into actions? There's lots of incredible statements by, you know, phenomenal leaders who all have stated a commitment to this time will be different. But how do those tremendous words get translated into action so we can see the change that we're all committing to right now. Any comments on, I, I, I think those leaders with all these comments, both black leaders, brown leaders, and white leaders, everyone sincerely feels in the gut of their stomach a different thing, right? It's just fed up. It's too, it's too long. We can't watch this happen every six months. And maybe COVID amplified that feeling because we saw the disparities of outcome given the COVID crisis. T- talk about that a little bit. Well, I think that what, you know, what the combination of COVID uh, and Minneapolis did is that it reinforced that if you're born into a certain zip code and maybe of a certain race, that you can expect potentially worse health care, worse health outcomes, lower incomes, you likely aren't an owner. And now, you know, there's a tremendous risk that your, that your, your safety can be taken away that by those who were expected to protect you. And so I think the combination of these items has just been, frankly, disgusting. And people are, you know, embarrassed not to act. And so we're seeing tremendous engagement, one, because the world is a quieter place because of COVID. Uh, but two, I think just the combination of these things is just, it's just gotten to a place where we can no longer ignore it now. But again, does it translate into sustained action? That mm-hmm. is the question. And that is the call to action, I think, for people like you and I. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so talk about your, your business, your project does create leaders or it creates a pipeline of people into the industry. So I want to think about pipeline of people and how that changes and how people can pour their love, commitment and dollars into an organization like yours. And I also want to think about investments themselves and how they may change. But let's talk about the pipeline of people first. Yeah. And I, I first want to just describe conceptually. I mean, I introduced what we do at a high level, but Um, we're trying to do is to create a new generation of owners. I'm a big believer that being an owner changes how you see yourself and maybe it has an impact on how others see you. Uh, and maybe there's a greater sense of fairness when you're an owner. And for me, it's rooted in my own history and that, you know, my great granddad, before I even knew his name, you know, my mother told me that he owned farmland. And I think that really Mm -hmm. defined how he saw himself, how others in the community saw him. And I think in communities around the country, we've got to take greater ownership or control of our destiny. And so if my program is really focused on starting at uh, early educational levels, 
training students how to become owners by looking at opportunities in their communities in terms of real estate, but also by engaging leaders in real estate in the story. So we don't just go into a high school and say, hey, let's find some pretend project um, and analyze it and make you feel good about yourself. No, we go in with a live, real deal in a neighborhood that we're very much focused on investing in. And then we go in and we partner with leaders in the sector, you know, whether it's um, you know, Rick Clark or Willie Walker, we go in with them and we actually take you know, tons of people and we descend on a school and we show them, you know, one, we're focused on investing in your community, and two, we're bringing tons of practitioners who are going to bring knowledge, but also who can help engage you and mentor you so that you can actually gain employment in the sector. So our business is very much focused on, much like the NBA, get to talent early, train them consistently, create access through mentorship, and then propel them into strong first jobs, uh, and then hopefully into becoming owners. Mm-hmm. And you talked before about storytelling. So how does storytelling work with young kids in underprivileged neighborhoods who don't have the role models to see pathways forward, but now maybe you're showing them a pathway forward? Is is that about storytelling or examples? Talk about yeah, that. I think it's I think it's both. I mean, because many of our stories are based upon examples, right? So you know, I remember when we launched in, in, in the Bronx and we, you know, as you know, we run, we train students using live deals and then they pitch them Shark Tank style. And on this particular Shark Tank panel, which was at Yankee Stadium, we obviously had A-Rod and J-Lo and John Gray and others. Um, and all of this, get them. And all of the students came in and they did a phenomenal job. Uh, but at the end of it, Jennifer said something that I thought was very profound. And what she said is that all of you students, you've done a tremendous job in coming up and presenting, but to a person, you've come up and you've code switched. You came in and you've got swag and energy and talent, but when you got in front of this audience, you didn't bring your full self to the table. You really tried to tell me a story using a voice that you know, I expected to hear, but I want to hear your energy, your local knowledge, the swag that really is so compelling in terms of deal-making. And so... The charge for us was that we hadn't done a great job teaching students how to tell stories. So from that day on, we began working with production companies. And before we teach you an ounce of real estate, we do a class on storytelling. And we bring in storytellers from Diana Olick at CNBC, you know, to people, to actors and actresses. And the focus is telling students that their story, their personal story, their community story is valuable. So job one is your, your community is valuable, you're valuable, the story you tell doesn't have to change because you're now speaking in a more technical language. Uh, the second thing is that we look at investment opportunities in your neighborhood. And what we're saying to you is your neighborhood has tons of value, which means you have tons of value and you need to understand that value rather than be at the mercy of developers when they come in 10 years from now. And so for us, that's a huge lesson in just self-worth. Uh, we're trying to use ownership language, storytelling language, so you begin to see yourself and your community differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the question I asked before. It's an interesting one, which is how do we invest, not just build build future pipeline of human beings, but how, how also do we spend our investment dollars in ways that can also change communities? Yes. And it is where, I mean, I, I think the real opportunity is for, you know, for CEOs um, to put in place metrics behind some of these strong words and then programming to support it. And whether that's working with us to train a new generation of folks to, to build a pipeline 
or that's looking internally and saying, how do we demystify success so that you move from analyst to managing director and understand the rules of the road? And I, I often say, when you're a point guard in an NBA, it's very clear the metrics, assist, assist to turnover ratio. They're very, very clear the things that are going to make you successful in winning a championship. It's not about having gone to school, you know, with the boss's, you know, son. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to demystify success and we've got to train a new set of leaders to basically build the capability so they can become the managing directors and partners of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I'm an impatient guy. So pipeline's cool. High school kids, great. Let's, and that solves one problem. And it also uh, puts us forward for success long-term, but how do we get to the boardroom now? Yeah. I mean, I think with all of these things, well, one, you know, customers and consumers, you know, of products have to demand it, right? I mean, we all have choices in how we purchase things uh, and we should measure people in terms of the words they're putting forward. Uh, and that, that means at the board level, at the CEO level, at the middle management level. So I think customers and frankly, asset managers who have capital to deploy, mm -hmm. they have to hold firms accountable to becoming more diverse. Uh, but ultimately, you need this to be a CEO-led movement right. where CEOs are saying, we're going to go out and do this, we're going to measure it, and we're going to report it. So uh, I want to hear the targeted outcomes, the metrics, so we know if we're moving forward in the right direction, uh, and and the programs to support it. Mm -hmm. And so we have to hold people accountable. So investors, you know, consumers, we've got to measure these brands by the actions and their reporting. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, flash in the pan, and it's yet another crisis gone wasted. Yeah, no, I mean, if we don't, if we don't put metrics behind it, it will undoubtedly repeat itself because people will give away generous dollars, which I completely respect. Uh, but they'll give away dollars, they'll check the box, and they'll move on. Uh, and that's frankly, that's not good enough. So, you know, we gotta we gotta hold people accountable. So that's why I say, going back to you, we need the storytellers to bring these stories to light. And then folks like me have to work with companies, you know, to support them in putting programs in place that deliver and sustain talent. And again, our programming at the high school level is important, but, you know, we just put in a new program with the Real Estate Board of New York. Now, initially it was in response to COVID, mm -hmm. uh, but it's addressed an important issue around diversity. And the issue is this, you know, after COVID-19, you know, New York City canceled its youth employment program, which meant 75,000 students lost their summer internship. Well, the Real Estate Board of New York and I partnered, um, and with two weeks of hearing it, they raised $150,000 to support 100 students of diverse backgrounds to getting jobs in real estate. Now, that wasn't even in response to Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. That was in response to COVID. But that kind of action and that kind of leadership is what we have to shine a light on because they're doing it the right way. Now, how do we use that to inspire people? So we need the storytellers to put those messages out there mm -hmm. so we get others to follow. Mm. It's interesting. Another theme we have in Leading Voices, I keep saying this, is you know how do we turn landlord in popular culture from a bad word to at least a neutral word? And it's so interesting. And what you find in COVID is that the landlords, particularly in New York, where this thing was home-based, I guess, um, they take the long-term view. And that long-term view is, again, at least neutral, but I think better than that. And it's telling those stories. And then that opens the minds to the communities that you're talking about to seeing it potentially as landlords or partners, not people to, to strike against. Yeah. No, you, you know, and what you just described is, you know, the landlords are, are, are making the right decision and then the word's getting out, right? I mm -hmm. think if anything, real estate 
um, because of its challenged history, you know, hasn't had phenomenal storytelling about some of the good that they do in communities. And what right. you, and you and I both know that when you describe some of the good, what you can do is create patterns for impact, right? So mm-hmm. if you hear about the Real Estate Board of New York's new program where students are getting jobs, well, then what you're hoping is tons of other organizations in New York and around the country are like, oh, we could do that. They sometimes need the creativity, mm-hmm. the pattern. And so I always say our job at Project Destin is, you know, we've got to put in place innovative programming partner with folks who who can actually drive the change but then we depend on you to help us actually amplify and tell the story so others can follow absolutely cedric i'm going to end the conversation there this is wonderful with metrics and storytelling i think we can get some stuff done here awesome no matt thank you as always it's it's been a pleasure thank you for listening into leading voices and i hope that you enjoyed today's episode i have a request If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.